House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that nice commercial from our sponsor and please purchase. And uh, now joining us, as uh, we mentioned earlier, uh, we have a journalist and author, and her book is called Submerged. Ryan Widmere, his drowned bride and the justice system. So we've got Janice Heisel. Thank you for being here, Janice. Thank you for having me. So, so now, Janice, let's let's start let's, let's start with you first of all. Um, so tell the tell the audience who you are. And, and what you have done up to this book, um, so we kind of know where you're coming from. You mean you want me to explain what led me to do the book, or just kind of a... Yeah, kind of a rough background. Auto- and, uh, yeah, but I mean, where, where did you come from, and kind of what were you doing uh, when you got Which into this Which planet, place? you mean? Or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mars, Jupiter. I don't usually share that information. <laughs> well, we, we were oh, looking for an address, I, phone number, all that sort of stuff. Oh, geez, any more you can find that. Don't go doxing me, guys. So, um, all right, I will start with kind of the quick overview. I was that um, annoying child who started reading mystery stories when I was super young, I never liked um, all the other books that my little friends were reading, like Cherry Ames, Student Nurse. That wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading things like The Hardy Boys and all that jazz. And as I got older, I graduated into things like Stephen King. But all of that stuff is fiction. And I eventually gravitated toward a career in journalism because I was always fascinated on things going on in the real world around me. So I spent... 27 years as a journalist and for whatever reason it seems like I always ended up with the weird cases and all of my colleagues would kind of joke with me about that like I was a magnet for the bizarre and when this case the case of Ryan Widmer came along it was really the most bizarre of bizarre just because there were so many unusual features to this one I had covered literally hundreds of murders during my time as a journalist and this one was so unusual in so many ways because for example the way that this young lady died drowned in her bathtub that doesn't happen as a mode of alleged homicide very often it does occasionally but you know you think of your your I hate to say it, garden variety homicide is more like your gunshot and a couple of drug dealers involved But this was very far removed from a scenario like that. This was a college-educated suburban couple, and she drowned in the bathtub. There is no dispute that that is exactly what happened. She drowned in age 24 after. How many uh, years were they married before this occurred? Oh, it wasn't years. They were only married four months, and that's another Hmm. one of the unusual features of this case. A lot of people look at that and say, my gosh, I mean, how mad can you get at somebody in four months? And because (laughs) this, (laughs) well, I don't want to just debate that. I'm just telling you I have some people who worded it that way. And so this particular case involves what was 
so fascinating to me is there are two very pretty far-fetched scenarios, and one of them has to be true. Either we have a guy who has zero history that anybody could find of violence just going off on anybody. And a twin, too, right? Into, yes, he does. And um, suddenly morphs into a murderous killer here, or you have no crime at all. Perhaps she drowned from a medical condition because this young lady did have some very unusual symptoms, but those were never really investigated before the suspect, in this case, Ryan Widmer, ends up being charged. He was charged two days after she drowned. And her death was ruled a homicide within 12 hours of her death, even though, get this, there was no obvious sign of injury to her or on Ryan, the suspect. Hmm. How do you physically drown someone in a bathtub and leave no marks on you or on the purported victim? And that is at the crux of this mystery. Hmm. Well, now, did they, did they come up with some sort of reason like when they were when they decided to arrest him, um, there must have been some sort of evidence or some sort of um, motive or something that they were holding on to to try and present the case. Correct. Um, what what happened is during the autopsy, the county coroner found um, it's, it's common when someone passes away that injuries that weren't visible upon death will show up sometime later because of the natural, you know, unfortunately, the natural decomposition process. Um, so there were some marks that showed up in her neck and her head that the coroner viewed as suspicious, along with a large area of, of bleeding in her neck. However, the key is that area of bleeding was in the area right where the medics started an IV line to try to save her life. So this coroner said, I think this is two areas of bleeding, one area attributable to the needle stick, but the other caused by some unknown mechanism. And, of course, the prosecution argued that that was caused by her husband in some kind of a holding her down type scenario. But the world's foremost death investigator, Dr. Werner Stitz, who's been involved in many, many famous cases, ranging from the John Vinay Ramsey case to the civil case of O.J. Simpson and many, many others, he actually stated that he believed that all of the bleeding was caused by the needle stick, not two areas. He thought it was one area of the bleeding. So that is one of the, the biggest pieces of evidence that the prosecution cited in terms of why they thought he should be charged with murder and convicted of murder. But then the other bizarre things that happened here is this happened in a small town. And the detective in this case had very minimal training dealing with homicides. In fact, this was the only, quote, unquote, fresh homicide that they had had in 10 years. I happen to live in this community, by the way. and <laughs> Still today? With a lot of people... <laughs> yes, I do. And a lot of people look at that and they thought, well, he, this was a rush to judgment and a tunnel vision situation. 
that there was no real investigation of any other possibility besides a murderous rage. The jurors who convicted this young man, they didn't really cite the evidence very much when I interviewed them and when other reporters interviewed them. They mostly cited this guy's demeanor in court. They didn't feel that he seemed to be upset enough, for example, when the um, autopsy photos were shown of his deceased wife. And those were the sorts of things that they pointed out. But what was extremely bizarre, even beyond that, is this case went to trial not once, not twice, but three times, because jury misconduct in the first trial resulted in that verdict being thrown out. And then in the second trial, the jurors were unable to reach the required unanimous decision, guilty or not guilty. And then finally, in the third trial, after 12 hours of deliberation, which was roughly one-third the length of the deliberation in trial two, he was convicted of murder. He still insists to this day that he didn't do it, and there are quite a few people who think that that's a very real possibility that he was wrongfully convicted. So that's the quick overview of the case, and you throw into it, I mean, you can't, it's literally in the you can't make this up category because we have an allegedly deceptive detective about his background. There were some things he stated, for example, that he had a master's degree when these two colleges he cited said, that, oh, he never even attended. The um, then we have, oh. yes, then we have a allegedly drowsy dispatcher. The dispatcher even asked Ryan Widmer when he called 911, what was the relationship and he said, are you her mother? And he doesn't sound like he has a high-pitched voice, like he could be a woman. And his very first words, by the way, Ryan Widmer's first words on the 911 call were, my wife fell asleep in the bathtub, and I think she's dead. And that in and of itself has been sliced and diced like a Cuisinart, I always say, because some people look at that, why would he offer an excuse? She fell asleep, and that's why she's dead. Um, or was it an innocent perception on his part of what he was seeing? Because she did, according to quite a few witnesses who did testify, had a history of falling asleep in the middle of the day at tailgate parties and even occasionally in mid-sentence. But this was never tested as far as I've been able to determine and she did have a cleft palate at birth. She had a heart murmur at that same time that was never further investigated. So there were a lot of possible medical connections to what happened here. Some of the disorders that can be associated with this cleft palate include one that involves paralysis of the feet and legs. Mm. Imagine if you're walking up to take a bath and you start taking tiptoes to get there. Is that a signal that there's something wrong with your feet or legs? Hmm. Well, guess what? That information was never brought out in Ryan's trial, and I found it in a document years later in the basement of his attorney's office that said that is, in fact, what occurred. Now, Question. I didn't just take Ryan Widmer's... Mm -hmm. Yes? I was just curious uh, when uh, that there it was uh, in front of a 
three different jury juries. The one that uh, they could not come to a conclusion. What was the? Do you know the percentage of who felt at that time was guilty versus non guilty? Not guilty. Well, even that is a point of contention because the jurors never took a, a final vote because they could tell that there were several people, at least two, who were not budging off the, I don't think there's enough evidence, I have reasonable doubt. Okay. So one of the jurors went on to a, a very well-known radio program here in Cincinnati and stated that, it was going to be 10 to 2 in favor of guilt. Well, all of these other jurors came forward and said, hey, that's not accurate. So I've received varying uh, tallies of that. Okay. Um, interestingly, we had several of the jurors from that second trial tried to persuade the judge not to let a third trial happen because one juror stated, they, it was like they gave us a bunch of crap evidence and said, you figure it out. She didn't think there was enough evidence. And that was, uh, you know, there was those similar statements that were made by several of the jurors uh, from trial two. And they, gave, they came to trial three to observe what was going on. Mm -hmm. And they were absolutely shocked at how the testimony of the young lady who died, her mother, that testimony changed very dramatically to the point where one of the jurors said it was like she was a different witness. Earlier, that mother had made a few statements about some things she necessarily didn't like about the relationship. She felt like that there was some type of a squabble over paint colors or over um, something about the couple's wedding. But um, there wasn't anything, you know, really sinister that most people would go, oh, you know. But then, during that third trial, she described their relationship as hateful. And that was completely out of character from what anybody else who testified had stated. So, during the, when so he was, was convicted, really that trial, she said it was hateful. Correct. Wow. And so the, the jurors, you know, I'm trying to give, uh, considering my background as a journalist, share opinions of other people. And that is the opinion of one of the jurors who listened to that testimony live in court. She said she seemed like a different witness. So we can only imagine what led to that. Question, I, I do have another question is, uh, you had said yeah. that... Uh, the you're saying I, I read something about your ju the judge not uh, not take uh, not allowing some DNA kind of testing to go on in the future to possibly uh, show something. Correct. One of the biggest remaining mysteries of this case is that Sarah's DNA remains in the possession of the prosecutor's office and the crime lab. Um, because she was cremated, there that's the only known source of her DNA. And there are tests that can be done to show whether she may have suffered from some of the disorders that have been associated with drownings. Um, some of these, these disorders are even stated, according to the Mayo Clinic, as being the first possible sign of an inherited trait within a family could be an unexplained drowning. Hmm. How interesting is that? 
So, again, we just don't know because those tests weren't done. There was a lot of criticism about the way that the investigation was handled, the, the speed with which Brian Widmer was charged, the speed with which the coroner ruled this death a homicide. A lot of people said, you know, there wasn't enough, you know, investigation into the entire circumstances before the those judgments were made and then you're, you're off to the races to a, a murder trial. Mm-hmm. So, so now, did you get to know um, about their relationship and what, what kind of uh, marriage that they had and, and, and was there any problems that you found? According to a neighbor I interviewed, this was another couple that about the same age in their 20s, she used to joke with Ryan and Sarah, you guys have to be stop being so cute because you're making us look bad. Um, the couple who introduced Ryan and Sarah, they're a married couple who have, according to them, similar personalities, just like Ryan and Sarah. For example, the woman in that couple is much more take charge, outgoing, outspoken, opinionated, and the guy is kind of more reserved, quote-unquote laid back, and also kind of a, a pushover, what, what the woman says goes kind of thing. And they, that couple described their relationship as being, Ryan and Sarah's relationship as being very similar to that. So that, was, that came out not just in interviews with me, but also on the witness stand. So it was kind of interesting that a person who is characterized as being very laid back, passive, kind of a pushover is being characterized as now going into some kind of a murderous rage and killing the woman he loved. Did you did you happen to interview Ryan at all after this? Oh, yes. I've been to the prison to interview Ryan quite a few times, and I told him that I was going to stay with his case no matter what happens. Ryan now has been waiting since December of 2015 for a federal judge to rule on whether that DNA of Sarah's would be released and a bunch of other issues. Mm-hmm. So um, we, still ha- we still don't know how that will go. If that appeal fails, then it is possible that the Innocence Project, have you guys heard of that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, might get involved, yeah. So the, the Ohio Innocence Project, the director of the one in the Cincinnati area, his name is Mark Godsey, and his wife is Michelle Berry. She is Ryan Widmer's appellate lawyer. Mm-hmm. So the Innocence Project is very well aware of the circumstances involving Ryan's case. And, again, he stands by his innocence, and there are – Still, a lot of really strong emotions swirling around this case. There are times when people will just come right out and say, let him burn in hell. We don't care about that guy. Of course he did it. And then other people are just as vociferous about he's languishing in prison while the federal court is not responding. How did these jurors convict him based on such ambiguous evidence? One of the things that I forgot to mention that can be literally interpreted either to a sinister scenario or a non-sinister one, just like so many facts in this case, 
the bathroom and Sarah were both described as being relatively dry. And by that I mean Sarah's hair was wet, but her skin was reported to be dry, and so was the bathroom. However, there were no signs of any cleanup. There were no uh, towels in the clothes dryer. And so people who think that Ryan is innocent think that that's a sign that literally she just succumbed in the water without any kind of a violent struggle or murderous rage here. And that's why Ryan, I guess, pulled, he, his statement is he pulled the plug as soon as he found her in the tub, sat her body up at the edge so her face was out of the water, and then begins trying to get a reaction from her further. You know, sees that she's not responsive. She's just there in the tub. And so the water's beginning to drain, drain, drain at this point, and her exposing more and more of her skin to the air. So was that sufficient time for her surface, skin surfaces to dry by the time that the medics and the police got there or not? The jury was never presented with any evidence as to the timing other than one witness said his own skin dried in seven minutes. So jurors ended up doing their own experiments mm. during trial one. They were laying down naked on the carpet and that ended up with you know coming out that that's what happened to try to come up with the timing and they all believed their peers that it took 15 minutes for their bodies to dry which would have been too long based on the 911 call. So, again, another aspect of the case that you can look at either way. It was either sinister or non-sinister. The dryness could indicate that she just, you know, literally slipped into the water, succumbed into the water after some type of a seizure, some type of a heart event, um, or, you know, even that, even something like maybe she did fall asleep, inhaled a mouthful of water, hmm. and then just can't get herself out and, and drown from that. So um, to inhale, uh, you know, water like that. And I've, I've had doctors come forward and tell me that when people inhale water like that, you may not thrash around because your vocal cords can end up, your larynx can become paralyzed, which question. was never brought up during Ryan's trial. Yes. I have a question. Um, because it yes. looks like it was in the public, the the news, all this stuff, um, did he ever offer publicly to say, I'll take a polygraph test or anything of that like that? Well, that didn't come out publicly, but I do did see a document that showed that Ryan had asked his lawyer, the first lawyer, there was some document that said something along the lines of whether he could do that. And the lawyer's response to me was that usually that's a bargaining chip for the lawyer to, to go to the prosecutor and go, hey, look, here's what this polygraph says. Don't charge my guy. Mm -hmm. He was already charged, and so because polygraphs are not admissible in court, the lawyer's opinion would be that that would not have assisted him in any way. At the, this point, it's too late. The train has left the station. He's been charged with murder. There's so, nothing but to like, uh, at that point. Like, I think, though, that there's... Uh, if I can see this is like the, that court of public opinion, I would I would even I mean you've interviewed him, probably going to interview him again maybe if if it continues right. Maybe I'd I would I would love to ask that question. Are you willing to say that and do that or something to that effect? 
and then just watch his response. <laughs> Here's the detective well, in me. <laughs> I've been in, yeah, uh, yeah, I hear you. I've been in touch with him um, ever since the, after the trial, I kind of, I was quote unquote widmered out, and I think uh, most people in the public were as well oh, after yeah. free trial. And, but I still just couldn't get this case off my mind, and that's literally why I ended up writing the book. And at the point I decided I was going to go ahead and, and move forward with that, I started to contact him, and I've had various meetings with him at the prison. I, I still talk to him about once a week because I said, you know, hey, I'd like to stay in touch with you just because I think it would be weird for me to not be in touch with him and all of a sudden say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about this court decision that came out. So I told him that I'm going to follow the case no matter what happens, and I'm still digging. There are still some pieces of information that I'm digging into and right. that haven't been pinned down, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. What, 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 what's the families of, of these two, of the couple? Um, how, how have they reacted, and have they chosen sides do they get along do they all support him him or not well initially sarah's family was in his corner so much that they actually asked for a reduced bond so he could get out of jail and go to her funeral i still remember the quote from her brother was in our heart of hearts we don't believe he did this that's pretty powerful for a, you know, victim family to come out and say that about the alleged killer. So that was um, very poignant. I, I hadn't really seen that in my time as a reporter, 27 years of doing that job. And um, it, was, it was really sad and touching. And I remembered thinking at the time, oh, these poor people are in denial. You know, of course he did this. And as the case went on and on, you know, I started to have questions and I would find my own opinion going back and forth. And, you know, as a journalist, unlike some people in that profession, I tried as hard as I could, as much as humanly possible, to be down the middle, as neutral as I could, and report on both sides. Now, with that said, Sarah's family eventually just kind of pulled away from him. But there was never, according to him, any kind of a confrontation. The part where the sentencing hearing is held and the victim's family is given an opportunity to comment, there was no comment made. So they, the family issued a very short written statement via the prosecutor's office shortly after that, um, just saying they, they were satisfied with the decision, something to that effect. But kind of, you know, just your standard statement that you might expect in a situation like that. Ryan's um, family, so, so Sarah's family, it doesn't live in the area anymore. Her mother moved away. Her father had already been deceased by the time all of this happened. And her mother did move out of state. I did try to reach them for the book and never received a response to a couple inquiries that I made. And then Ryan's family cooperated for the book. But I get the feeling that many of those people, in fact, almost everybody who's connected to this case in any way, considers it to be so painful that they don't like to even think about it or dredge up the memories of it very often at all. There were times when certain people could not complete 
interviews with me because they were too emotional and um, couldn't finish reading the book, for example, because it, it was it, they weren't able to sleep. And I just think they, as a defense mechanism, kind of put this in a box. One of the additional tragedies, I've always believed as a reporter who covered a lot of homicides, that there are a lot of ripple effects from any homicide, um, you know, a lot of, you know, collateral damage. And in this case, one of the saddest, most horrible examples of collateral damage was what happened to Ryan's mother. Mm. Ryan's mother considered Ryan to be her favorite child among the, her three sons. And that's by all accounts, even from his, you know, other brothers and Ryan's father. They were divorced, by the way, the, the mom and dad. And Ryan's mother fought and fought and fought on behalf of her son because she fervently believed in his innocence. She started to drink heavily. She ends up dead of alcohol-related problems. And um, she actually wasn't even able to attend the final trial because she had gone into such an irreversible downward spiral. And what is even more chilling about this whole thing, in irony of ironies, Ryan's twin brother goes to check on their mother after he doesn't hear from her in a period of time, finds her dead, calls 911, and uses the exact same words that Ryan did, I think she's dead. Hmm. Whoa. When I heard that on the 911 call from his brother, it it was very kind of almost eerie in a way. And um, I know with a, being a police background, sometimes you think about, you kind of dissect how does a person make a statement. And so when you look at Ryan's statement, I think she's dead, I think in both instances, both men knew that these women were dead. Mm. But if you think Ryan is innocent, could that wording have been because I think she's dead because he didn't want to admit that he knew she was? Or was that a cover story because he's a killer? In the case of his brother, it's obvious that he wasn't anywhere near. And the other irony is, the same coroner had to handle the autopsy of Ryan's mother, much to the chagrin of all of Ryan's relatives. And that same coroner took four months to sign off on a cause of death for, Sarah, for Ryan's mother. Mm-hmm. And he, he ended up signing off very quickly on the cause of death in Sarah's case. He didn't write the cause of death within two days, but he declared it the next day as a homicide. And then he signed a document, I think, maybe within a week. So people look at the contrast there and wonder. So very interesting and sad scenario. It's literally just one of the most awful things about the case when you look at that tragedy, regardless of whether you think Ryan Woodmer did this, surely his mother you have to feel compassion for both mothers, for both there's families. Gonna, there's going to be an appeal, is there? Oh, well, there's been multiple appeals already. And um, there, what's called a writ of habeas corpus is actually what is currently still pending in the federal court. That is 
basically a court motion that says we don't we don't think you have the right to have this person in custody because this person's rights were violated by A, B, C, D wow. down the line. And that DNA um, is one of the, the biggest points of contention that they think Sarah's DNA should be released and they should be allowed to test it to see whether she, in fact, t- you know, had the, the gene for some of these genetic disorders that seem to fit some of the symptoms described for her. Mm-hmm. What, what was it in particular um, that drew the cops to arrest him within two days? Like um, in a case like where she was, she was drowned in a tub or she, you know, maybe herself, um, I'm just confused at why they jumped so quickly. I'm confused too because I actually... Interestingly, I had what I would consider a very nice rapport with the lead detective in this case. And um, there was a gag order in place for much of these trials that nobody in an official capacity was allowed to speak to the the media, including me. But at one point, I remember asking that detective, hey, when all this is over, can you, like, give me the scoop on why did you guys charge him so fast? You know, because I actually talked to other police officers who said, you know, absent having the person at the scene with the smoking gun in hand, that's really, really quick to charge somebody with, with murder. And this detective said, sure, I'll let you know. And he went, after it was all over, I remember feeling very, you know, just having a quizzical response to it when he said, well, he had a lot of connections in other states because of his job, so we think he was probably going to flee the area. And you could say that most people have a lot of connections in other states. You're in a different state than I am, for example. <laughs> and I don't intend on fleeing the area, by the way. But, um, it, you know, I just thought that that seemed kind of like not the, the best rationale I've ever heard to charge somebody with murder within a two-day period in a case like this where the circumstances are everything. Mm. And there was no reason to believe that you know this guy had no prior history of any kind of violence i think his only infraction of any kind was a ticket for driving the wrong way on a one-way street (laughs) so you go from that being a college educated guy laid-back dude by all accounts to then viciously drowning the woman that you promised to spend forever with in her bathtub four months after your wedding day so um, it was also very interesting to me, and I never got a good explanation for this either. Why did the police never interview him, Ryan Whitmer, when Ryan and his attorney both told me that they were willing to speak to the police? In fact, when Ryan's lawyer first took this case on, he thought, oh, this is just a hand-holding situation Clearly, this guy didn't do you know anything nefarious here. He's just a grieving husband. Friends of the family urged him to get a lawyer. He didn't think he needed one, but he went ahead and called friend of a friend of a friend thing. And um, he that lawyer was actually shocked when the charges came out that quickly, and the police told him, "We're not interested in talking to your guy anymore." Hmm. I've never heard of a police officer not wanting to speak to a willing suspect, have you? No. No. (laughs) That was 
had. Um, now, there was one interview done with Ryan by an official type. He made a couple of comments at the scene when the medics and the police were there initially trying to save his wife. But the only other interview was certainly less than five minutes, and it was a coroner's investigator who's a former police officer. I also knew that particular um, individual and had a nice relationship with him, and he was also barred from really saying much of anything. Now, um, he remains in an official capacity, and I don't think he would be in a position to really um, give me any additional information. Um, but, again, that particular interview was like three to five minutes long, so they weren't able to cover a ton of information. In his estimation, there were some statements that Ryan made that he thought sounded suspicious or contradictory, such as, you know, he said, I pulled her out of the water, but then he said, I, you know, I pulled the drain plug. And see, there was a jumbling of the facts. And so when he said, I pulled her out of the water, Ryan said he was trying to convey, pulled just her upper body out of the water, not her whole body out of the tub. He was later accused of murder, partly because they believed that he removed her whole body, and that's why she was dry. So he says, no, she was apparently dry because I pulled the drain plug. It was like an instinctive reaction. As soon as I find her in the tub, pull the drain plug and set her up. Hey, Sarah, Sarah. So, again, which version do you believe? Hmm. What, what do you think the reasoning is for why he was convicted then? And I don't mean that, you know, the evidence and the case and all that. Is this a, a problem with the local police department? Is it the detectives? Is there something they didn't like about him? Was his family not liked? Uh, do they? Is it just incompetence? Like, like I'm trying to get what you think the reasoning of them charging him and getting him convicted and put away on such minimal sort of evidence was from their point of view. Well, rather than saying what what I think, I would like to share with you what I've heard from people in the community. Okay. People in the community, Ryan, it didn't have anything to do with whether Ryan's family was liked or anything like that. It, you know, they were relatively new to this area in terms of this county. Uh, Ryan and Sarah had, you know, purchased this house, I think, about a year before they were married. They did purchase this house together. So they did live together for a time before they were married. Um, so, again, I don't think it had anything to do with that. They were just kind of, your everyday citizen going about their business until all this happened. So it wasn't like they were really a known family, nothing like that. Um, but there are people who believe that the, the tunnel vision, rush to judgment, the husband always does it, prevented them from fully looking at the entire circumstances. And then once that decision is made to charge a person with murder, it's kind of hard to backpedal and go, never mind about that murder charge. It does occasionally happen, but it's not common. It's very unusual and rare for that to occur, especially when you have an inexperienced detective with arguably a very big ego. And that's what most people think occurred here. And they, in fact, one of his attorneys stated it was almost like a perfect storm of things gone wrong, that he just gets caught in this maelstrom and ends up being pulled into this vortex of the legal system 
when you know, he could have just been an ordinary guy who encountered some extraordinary circumstances on that night. So that is what a lot of people say. That, coupled with juries, want an answer. They don't want to look at the victim's family and go, you know what, we don't really know what happened here. It's it's more satisfying to be able to say, case closed, move on to the next one. So I think that's another thing, especially because when I interview jurors and ask them, why did you convict him? The the 911 call, his demeanor, things like that were, were really high on the list rather than the evidence that they took weeks to present. His so demeanor in court was, as well? Yeah, like that he didn't react, but then again, his lawyer told him not to react. And he's kind of a stoic guy to start with. And so there was just a lot of more of the subjective rationale rather than factual rationale. And I've often asked this question. Would, if Ryan's, if um, Sarah's mother had found her in that bathtub, do you think they would have been so quick to charge her? If the situation were reversed and it was Sarah who finds Ryan in the tub, would she have been so quick to be charged? I just think that a lot of times there are assumptions that enter into this, and I'm sure with your law enforcement background, you are aware of the perils of tunnel vision, which a lot of people think probably happened in this case. Again, that's what I hear. Now, there are other people who absolutely come out and say, I don't believe this guy. He looks creepy. And that's the other thing. The media coverage does play a, a role in public perception of a person. And guess where the jury comes from? The public. Mm-hmm. So when an unflattering mugshot of a guy showing his tattoos and his eyes are reddened because he was up all night crying, it it doesn't look that that's good, and then ooh, I can see where that guy. Did. That's the guy who did that. All of a sudden, that's what people say. That's the guy who did that. They're not willing to say that's the guy who's accused. That's the guy who did that. Immediately is what people start to say. So that is, I think, inherent in a lot of jurors' minds now. They don't realize that they're already leaning toward conviction. They're already leaning toward believing everything that the police say, the prosecutors say, the coroners say. They need and want those people to be right, to be competent, and to be honest. And we all so, know they're not always all of those things. So a uh, question. Let's say there, uh, it, uh, the DNA uh, test does occur, and just hypothetically speaking, what if it comes back that she did not have that? Would that? Do you think that would change anyone's mind? Or um, um, I'm just kind of thinking in the hypothetical. I've I've thought about that, and I do think there are some people. If it did come back that shows she tested positive for that gene, that they would be very concerned, even more so than they are now, about whether this was a justified result having this man convicted. Right. Um, now, and the reverse is the reverse is true. That if she doesn't test positive, the problem is you can't test for all possible disorders. And the right. other 
problem is, unfortunately, there are some questions that are unanswerable because Sarah's brain was not preserved prior to it being dissected. Right. And as a result of that, the brain disintegrates when it's not preserved and when it's, mm-hmm. they cut into it. I know that's kind of graphic, mm-hmm. but this, this coroner wasn't even able to say whether he sampled the hypothalamus Mm-hmm. which is the section you would be looking at microscopically for narcolepsy, which is then possibly associated with cataplexy. Cataplexy is paralysis that can occur in people who have narcolepsy. Mm-hmm. And cataplexy involves you're awake, but all of your voluntary muscles are completely still out of your control. And you, you, you can, if that happens in a bathtub, you definitely drown. Yeah. So now, um, where do you see this case going? Like, what, what's, what do you think is going to happen now? Well, that is up for the courts to decide. Um, during my discussions with Ryan and other people, he he seems to think that there is that somehow this situation will be rectified, that some information will come out that shows, in fact, that he didn't do this, or at least that there were, you know, substantial errors made in his trial that led, you know, to his conviction. Um, Oh, I forgot to mention to you, by the way, that Ryan was offered a plea deal and turned it down prior to the Mm -hmm. third trial. So he, he just immediately shut down his lawyers and said, nope. Nope, I'm not pleading to something I didn't do. So um, he has stood by that protestation of innocence from the very beginning, even when given the opportunity to have possibly been out in five years. He has now served about half of his 15-to-life sentence. So under Ohio law, um, he would be then able to go before the parole board in 2025, um, and the way the parole board sometimes behaves is that if you ask a person, did you do this, and they say, I'm innocent, that gets marked down as lack of remorse, so back in prison you go. Conversely, if a person who previously claimed innocence decides they're going to say, I did this, just because they're, they're trying to show remorse, then that is marked down as being, you were dishonest and you flip-flopped. Back in prison, you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, I think in some ways, uh, it, it 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 could be perceived that Ryan is in a darn if you do, darn if you don't kind of situation, and th- it's hard to say what direction this case will go. But I will tell you that I interviewed a witness who no one else ever interviewed, <laughs> and. Mm-hmm. I'm not able to go into the detail about that interview other than to tell you if this person comes forward, I am pretty confident that it could lead to another trial. Um, I promised this person anonymity, but because of the situation surrounding what I was being told, I can't allow these this person to anonymously make statements of an explosive nature. So this person knows who they are. If they come forward then the information could lead to another trial. 
So mm-hmm. I, I will say there is someone out there who knows something pivotal and just so far has refused to go public with it. Was that you, Michael? <laughs> I'm sorry, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so now tell people, uh, now do you have a website or a place that uh, you could uh, have people go to to find out more information about you, the book, and things like that? Yes. Actually, um, I have two. I have a website. If you just remember, thesubmergedbook.com, thesubmergedbook.com, or you can go on Facebook and look for Submerged, Ryan Widmer Has Drowned Fried in the Justice System, that is a Facebook group where I post information relevant to this case or about the criminal justice system or about journalism, you know, things that would be of interest to people who have been following this absolutely baffling and very emotional case. Fantastic. We'll have that linked up on our webpage as well, so people that are looking for more information or want to pick up the book, they can just do one click and uh, the link will be there. So, wow, what an interesting case, and we appreciate you uh, um, taking the interest in, and coming on the show and talking about it. Thank I'm you. sure people, yeah. And so now our guest has been uh, Janice Heisel, and her book is called Submerged, and it's the Ryan Widmere, his, his Drowned Bride and the Justice System. Um, thank you very much for, for being on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.